The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, we come back uh, today to the study of the history of the church. I think next week, uh, Pastor Nick will be doing one of the chapters in the confession, and then the next week I'll, I'll take up the history of the church again. And then I'll be out of the adult class for a while because I'll be back in the back teaching our, our new members class that we have every year. So I'll be back there for a while. I think we have 35 people in our new members class, so it's going to be a big chunk of people. So um, so that's what we're doing. And so it'll be after week after next. After that, it'll be a few weeks before I'll be back in the adult Sunday school class teaching church history. So all right, just real quickly, just to remind you what we're doing here, where we are. We're in the Reformation period of church history. We've covered these, these uh, parts, sections, Reformation, different regions. And then we took up the progress and developments, conflict following the initial stages of the Reformation. And unit one was developments in Lutheranism. Unit two was reformed orthodoxy under Calvin, after Calvin. And now we're in unit three, the Puritan era uh, in England. So just as a reminder, I feel like I have to kind of review some of these things because there's such gaps in between classes. But remember the Puritans, as they're called, uh, they were serious Reformed Christians in England who were strongly committed to the Bible, who believed in the centrality of preaching and the necessity of personal conversion and practical piety, and who advocated for a more thorough reformation of the English church and its worship to conform with the scriptures. Hey, Jennifer, good to see you. It's good to see Jennifer with us today. <laughs> oh, I'm distracted. Now, where was I? Okay. Uh, now, over again, so they're they, they pushing for a more thorough reformation of the English church and its worship uh, over against the uh, partial reformation that had been established by the Elizabethan settlement. And the Elizabethan settlement was the resulting state of affairs in England when Elizabeth took the throne in 1558, and she reigned for a long time, for about 44 years, from uh, 1558 to 1603. The situation for uh, the Church of England, as it was established by law under Elizabeth, is what is uh, referred to, described as the Elizabethan Settlement. It instituted only a partial reformation. Uh, by the act of supremacy, the mar monarch was recognized as the supreme governor of the church. The 1552 Book of Common Prayer was established as the Anglican form of worship with some minor revisions, threatening severe penalties for anyone who dissented from it. Various relics of the old Roman Catholic worship remained, like priestly vestments and bowing before the elements of the Lord's Supper, the ecclesiastical structure that was established by the Elizabethan settlement was uh, an Episcopal form of church government, a hierarchy of church leaders or bishops having authority over the local churches and local ministers in various regions of the country. And Elizabeth was also careful to appoint bishops who supported her authority and her wishes as the governor of the church. And then the doctrinal statement of the Anglican church that was adopted is called the 39 Articles of religion, it, it also is kind of an interesting mixture. It's reformed uh, rather than Lutheran when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's more Lutheran than reformed in its doctrine of the church with the church under state control and with the allowance of certain relics 
of the old Roman Catholic worship, but it was mostly Calvinistic in its doctrine of salvation. Well, again, Puritanism arose in England out of a desire to purify the church to bring about a more thorough reformation of its doctrine, practice, and worship. And this conflict in England, the Puritan era, is, it's a long one. It, it spanned the reign of several monarchs. First, there is Puritan, Puritanism during the reign of Elizabeth, 1558 to 1603, then under the reign of James Stuart, James I, and then that's followed by Charles I, which is then followed by the Civil War between the Parliament and the Crown, and that's the, which the Parliament actually defeated the Crown, and Charles I is going to be beheaded. And we have the Commonwealth period where uh, uh, England was a republic, uh, ruled by the Parliament with... Uh, Oliver Cromwell as some, something like a prime minister, the Lord Protector of England. That lasted for about 12 years. Then there was the Restoration with Charles II, and then James I's short reign. There's the Glorious Revolution, William and Mary, and the establishment of a new dynasty, a new ruling dynasty, and the passing of the Act of Toleration, which gave freedom of worship for dissenters uh, who dissented from the Church of England, and that was in 1689. That was the year our uh, Confession of Faith was published. It was actually written in 1677, but it was published in 1689 because you could publish it without getting thrown in jail after the Act of Toleration was passed in 1689. And that marks the end of that period, the Puritan period, and then we enter into the modern period of church history, okay? Well, remember that by the time we get to the 1580s, there are basically three types of Puritans that have emerged. Those who disliked many aspects of the Elizabethan policies, but who believed it would be schismatic and sinful anarchy to actively disobey, and they decided to conform and to encourage others to conform, to focus their energies on preaching and teaching. And, and that group eventually became really not... Puritan really at all, just more kind of evangelicals within the Anglican church who were happy to be there. And then the second group were those who disliked not only vestments and other elements of medieval uh, Catholic ritual in the church, but they also believed the Anglican church needed reforming in its organization. And some of these in this group actually favored episcopacy, an Episcopal form of church government, or were okay with it. And others of them favored Presbyterianism, but all of these in this kind of middle category, whether Episcopalian or Presbyterian, they desired church government and structures to be made simpler and more accountable, and they also determined not to be actively disruptive, but to concentrate on preaching and teaching, hoping by this means to gradually build a grassroots reformation so that Parliament could eventually be permeated by their influence, and that would result in an orderly and lawful reform of the church without some kind of revolution and some great social upheaval. And then there was the third category, a third Puritan group. This was made up of more aggressive Presbyterians who actively challenged the Anglican establishment and advocated the more or less immediate dismantling of it. And they believed that Presbyterian church government was the only biblical pattern and should be established by law, and they often sought to appeal directly to the parliament to take control of the church, and to reform it. So these are the three groups you have during the Elizabethan period that you would classify in the category of Puritans, the Puritans. Now this, this is going to morph as we go along, but 
And I don't have time to go over all of the ups and downs of the efforts that were made during this period. We've considered all of that. The, uh, you remember the, uh, uh, the prophesying meetings, the classist movement, a kind of clandestine sort of Presbyterian structure embedded within the Anglican Church seeking to promote Presbyterianism. We went through all of these different things, but just to say that by the end of Elizabeth's reign, most of these efforts to further reform the church have been completely unsuccessful, at least in terms of any large-scale reordering of the Church of England, and there have been those who have been put out of their ministries because of their advocating for some of these things and, and ha- that have been persecuted. Well, so this brings us now to where we take up this morning. That, that was all review. I'm sorry to have to give all that review, but I think it's necessary because uh, it's been a while. We're skipping periods here. So there's one last development under Elizabeth I want to mention, and then God willing, we'll, we'll move on to the reign of James I, the king who follows after Elizabeth. And that last development was the resurgence of separatism in the 1580s. The strong resistance of the crown under Elizabeth to any further reformation of the church that helped to create really this reemergence of separatism in the 1580s. There were some beginnings of it we saw earlier, but now it really began to come into its own. And what does that mean? Well, separatism refers to those who determined to separate from the established church completely and who rejected the whole idea of an established state church. The only way to have a biblical church, in their view, was to leave Anglicanism completely rather than to try to reform it. Now, the most significant of these uh, early separatists was a man by the name of Robert Brown. And he lived from 1550 to 1633. Fairly long life for that period in history. He lived about 83 years. He was a graduate of Cambridge University. He had studied there under Thomas Cartwright. You remember Thomas Cartwright was one of those guys in that third category, more aggressive Presbyterians trying to reform and advocate for the Presbyterian church being established as the state church. And uh, he was a very influential person who taught in Cambridge for a while before he was fired uh, by the Archbishop John, or at that time he was Chancellor of the University, John Whitgift. So he was influenced by Cartwright. He began as a Puritan desiring to see the Church of England further reformed. Uh, One of the more moderate Puritans, uh, he's been mentioned in past lectures, Richard Greenham, actually took Brown under his wing in 1578, encouraged him to finish his divinity studies and to accept a parish ministry. However, by 1582, Brown had rejected the established church completely and separated from it. He gathered some like-minded believers and eventually he sailed for the Dutch Republic where he founded there a separatist church in the city of Middleburg. The church uh, was plagued with all kinds of internal problems and divisions. His congregation eventually fired him. Uh, they viewed him as being too censorious and too exclusive. So Brown then left for Scotland. But before he went there, he had written what... Uh, has been referred to as the first and enduring masterpiece of separatist theology. And it was entitled, Treatise of Reformation Without Tarrying for Any. That was the title. And in it, uh, Brown argued that reforming a corrupt church like the Anglican church 
involved an ungodly tarrying, an ungodly waiting for bishops and members of parliament to be won over, whereas he argued that scripture required immediate action. He argued that true believers had only one righteous choice, and that is to secede from the Church of England, form their own local congregations made up, not of everyone in the local area, as in the parish system, but only of true believers, only those with a credible profession of faith. So you can see that Brown is moving close to Baptist to a big step toward what we'll see with the Baptist. A believer's congregation made up of those with a credible profession of faith that is independent of any kind of state uh, denominational church. Uh, And so this is what he argued for, wrote about. After he left the Dutch Republic, Brown attempted to promote separatism in Scotland, but he had all kinds of difficulties and problems there. He was unsuccessful. He ended up in prison. He eventually regained his freedom and made his way back to England. And here's what's surprising and interesting. After all of these difficult experiences, he became disenchanted by them, and he finally conformed to the Anglican church. And in 1591, he became the minister of an Anglican church. But even though he went back, Brown went back to the Anglican church, he had started a movement that continued to progress. In fact, separatists and congregationalists were commonly called Brownists. And sometimes you may be reading something from that time period, maybe some Puritan book, and they'll make reference to the Brownists. Well, they're talking about separatists. And some of his writings advocated separate, advocating separatism were, in fact, when you think of the separatists, if we, if we like move forward quite a distance in, in history, some of the early pilgrims who came to our country were separatists. So this is going to develop. It's going to become a bigger uh, movement. But So uh, some of his writings advocating separatism were very influential in England and continue to be so even after he himself no longer believed what he had written. His treatises were condemned by a special royal proclamation in 1583, And there were actually two men, John Copping and Elias Thacker, who were hanged for distributing uh, his book. There were other separatist leaders who began to arise during this time. Needham mentions three key leaders, all of whom died in 1593 as martyrs. One was John Greenwood. Don't confuse him with with Greenham we talked about earlier, but John Greenwood He was also a Cambridge graduate who had been greatly influenced by Cartwright, but he eventually withdrew completely from the Church of England and became a separatist leader in London. Another was Henry Barrow. He too was a Cambridge graduate, and he was an ex-lawyer who had become deeply interested in theology after undergoing a sudden conversion experience, and he was a good friend of Greenwood. And One day while visiting Greenwood in prison, Barrow was arrested and put into the prison with him. And during his long imprisonment there, he wrote several treatises setting forth the principles of congregationalism. And uh, he had some wealthy friends in Holland who, who arranged for those to be published. And they were very influential in promoting the independent kind of congregational view of uh, the church. Um, these were printed and published 
So the Congregationalists were sometimes called Barrowists instead of Brownists. Uh, the third man was John Penry. He became friends with Greenwood and Barrow while in prison with them. He was a Welshman who also studied in Cambridge, also at Oxford. Uh, he may have been a, it appears he may have been a Roman Catholic by upbringing, but while he was at Cambridge, he embraced uh, the gospel, embraced Calvinism and Reformed theology, and he became an ardent Presbyterian. And at Oxford, he published a plea for more effective evangelism in Wales. And he was also critical of the Welsh Anglican establishment, and he eventually took the next step and became a separatist. He was actually suspected as being the man who, who was the author of the Martin Mar Prelate tracts. You remember we talked about those a few weeks ago, the, those uh, uh, anonymous little tracts that were published and spread across England that were satires making fun of the English clergy and the Church of England and Whitgift and so forth. Well, uh, Pen- Penry was suspected as, as being the author of them. Now, whether he was, uh, that's not absolutely certain, but it's for sure that he was one of the ones who helped print them and to see them distributed throughout England. And he was arrested in 1593. Greenwood and Barrow were convicted of publishing material, quote, with malicious intent, unquote, and hanged on April the 6th, 1593. Penry was convicted of, quote, inciting rebellion, unquote, and hanged on May 9th, so around the same time, within a month or so of each other. But by killing the leaders of separatism, the Elizabethan authorities had not stamped out the movement itself, and they knew that, and issued the Conventicle Act of 1593. Now, the Conventicle Act of 1593, it forbid the conducting of religious services outside of the auspices and approval of the Anglican Church. And it decreed the punishment of banishment for separatism as the first penalty, holding a, a religious service outside the auspices of the Church of, Eng, uh, Church of England. You could be banished the first, first time you were called doing that. And death if the banished person then ever dared to return to England. Uh, Most of Greenwood's congregation at this time immigrated to Holland, to the Dutch Republic, and settled in Amsterdam. And we're going to see that's going to be something common that's going to happen later on with some of the separatists uh, moving to Holland. That's if you remember the pilgrims. They went to Holland, and then from Holland they came across to America. So, all right, so, so much for that. We really wrapped up the study of Puritanism under Elizabeth in the last few weeks. And now we move to the second period and James I ruled over England. That was from 1603 to 1625. Some of you know Elizabeth never married. She's referred to as the virgin queen. She, whether she's a virgin or not, it's doubtful. But she never married. And uh, she died childless in March 1603. At her death, the throne passed to the Scottish king James VI who then became James I of England. Now, it's kind of complicated how James ended up inheriting the throne, and I'm going to get into all of the details. But basically, he was a descendant of Margaret Tudor. Remember, Elizabeth is part of the Tudor dynasty, going back, going back for some years. Uh, 
And he was a descendant of Margaret Tudor, who was the sister of Elizabeth's grandfather, King Henry VII. Now, James is an interesting character. I've been reading some about him. I was reading a book while I was on vacation. I had a lot of interesting information about James I. He, he was a committed Episcopalian. In other words, he, uh, he, was, he was committed to the Anglican Church, to Episcopalian Church government, and that included the continuance of royally appointed bishops. And in fact, this was viewed by him and many of these kings as a necessary safeguard of royal authority, that they maintained the authority to appoint these bishops that would rule over these different regional regions of churches. So he was very much in favor of that. He was a strong Anglican. He had spent much of his reign in Scotland in conflict with the Scottish Presbyterians, and he had managed to outmaneuver them by bringing the National Scottish Church largely under royal control while he was there. But on the other hand, it's interesting that his own personal beliefs about things like soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, he was reformed. And in other words, he was a Calvinist. He kind of prided himself on being something of a a theologian, his ability to discuss and debate these matters. And therefore, the English Puritans had high hopes when he became the new monarch of England. There's something else about him that at the same time, uh, though he could talk a good talk and everything and even prided himself in his theological knowledge, he basically lived a very immoral and uh, pleasure-seeking lifestyle especially in the latter part of his reign. He was married to a Danish princess, Anne. They had three children. He had three children with her. But it's also known that he had homosexual relationships as well. I guess you could say that he was what is called um, bisexual. Uh, The Puritans certainly didn't know everything about his actual character before he transferred uh, to Scotland. And again, they had high hopes because James was, had Calvinistic convictions. Isn't that just a reminder that you can have right doctrine and not be right with God yourself? Right? It's not all just about having your doctrine right, correct? Well, the first major event after his coronation was the Hampton Court Conference. After James was proclaimed king, uh, Puritan ministers in the Church of England very quickly organized a petition. Now, they've done this kind of thing before, you may remember. And it, this one was signed by a thousand ministers asking James to reform the Church of England. Now, I'll put that in perspective. The Anglican Church had about 9,000 ministers at that time. So you have about one out of nine who uh, signed this petition gives you an idea that the Puritans were still something of a minority in England at the time. But it was a very vocal and organized minority, and because it had a thousand signatures, uh, the petition is known as the millinery petition. Now, the demands that they made were some of the same things that we've already seen under Elizabeth. Uh, The petition requested an end to requiring such things as uh, clerical vestments, making the sign of the cross, baptism, bowing at the name of Jesus, the use of the word priest in the prayer book to refer to ministers. The signers of uh, the uh, petition also objected to what is called pluralism. I'm not talking about 
the way, we usually use the word whether to refer to political pluralism or philosophical pluralism, but <clears throat> this is another way this word is used. It's used to refer to men holding more than one church appointment at the same time. It'd be like me being a pastor of several churches at the same time. Um, for example, a man holding an office over two or more parish churches at the same time and receiving an income from all of them, even when he may not reside there at one or more of them. And this was something that was commonly happening in the Episcopal Church. And it was kind of a racket, really, a money racket, a way to make have more money. You, you know, it was these appointments that the crown would make were political often. And, hey, you know, if you'll be my buddy, then I'll appoint you the living of such and such. And uh, it may be that guy never even goes there very often, right? And they also objected to ministers who didn't actually preach. The signers also proposed a conference of scholars to discuss these issues, presided over by King James. Now, you may remember from a previous class that Archbishop Whitgift, though he was a Calvinist, he was an ardent foe of Rome, he was not a Puritan. He was completely devoted to the Anglican establishment, and he was very, uh, you know, in, in the politics of it all and so forth. Well, he was still Archbishop of the Church of England at this time, and to his alarm, and the alarm of the other Anglican bishops, James agreed to the requested conference. As I said, he liked to think of himself as a theologian. He probably flattered his vanity to uh, kind of imagine himself engaging in these discussions with these theologians and showing off his great learning to the English church leaders. And so the conference was scheduled to take place on November the 1st at Hampton Court, a royal palace on the Thames River, but an outbreak of the plague uh, postponed it until January 1604. Well, how did it go? How did this Hampton Co uh, Court conference go? Well, Needham gives kind of a summary, uh, trying to kind of give us something of an idea of what happened to reconstruct. I'll just read what he says because it's brief and helpful. The Anglican establishment was represented by Archbishop Whitgift and eight other bishops, eight deans and one archdeacon. Their chief spokesman was the vehemently anti-Puritan Bishop Bancroft of London. The king's private council selected a group of Puritans to represent the other side. The council chose probably mostly four very moderate Puritans. Led by the scholarly John Riddle, Reynolds, president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford University. Reynolds was the most moderate Puritan imaginable and certainly no dogmatic Presbyterian. He believed in a reformed episcopacy. The other three moderates were Lawrence Chatterton, Thomas Spark, and John Newstubbs. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. It's actually spelled K-N-E-W-S-T-U-B-S. Where did you get a name like that? Newstubbs. It's better than old stubs, right? I'd rather have no stubs. <laughs> uh, anyway, John Newstubbs. Some think uh, a fifth moderate Puritan, Richard Field, was also present. The three-day conference was almost entirely amicable. Only Bishop Bancroft kept losing his cool and had to be whipped back into line by the king. James did once see red when Reynolds used the word presbyter. 
He reminded James of his exhausting struggles with the Presbyterian party in Scotland. But the royal wrath lasted only a moment. By the end of the conference, the king had agreed to a list of moderate requests for Anglican reform. Well, that was encouraging. We might think now that that's very promising, uh, but the reality is absolutely none of those reforms were ever enacted. One reason was that Whitgift died only a month after the conference, and even with his strong devotion to Anglicanism and his opposition to Puritans, he was moderate compared to the man who replaced him. He was replaced by this guy, Bishop Bancroft. And with Bancroft as the new Archbishop of Canterbury, there would be no reforms. James himself was too lazy when it came to tedious matters of administration. He liked to, he spent, actually spent a lot of his time hunting. He was just a guy that just was a pleasure seeker, really. And he was very, uh, he would go in, he would go like, say you're a, you're a nobleman or you're, you're a lord in England. You have a lot of land, you're an aristocracy. And he would just bring his entourage and just come move into your castle and we're going to hunt your lands for a while kind of thing. And uh, this starts to be kind of a, an offense, an offense to some of the um, uh, landowners uh, that'll actually be on the Puritan side during the Civil War. But anyway, um, so he, 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 these tedious matters of administration, he wasn't that interested in them to follow up with Bancroft to make sure that the minor reforms agreed on at the conference were put in place. And I think we can justly assume then that his heart wasn't really in it to begin with. And so nothing changed. It actually got worse as Bancroft, when he became Arch, Arch uh, Archbishop, he immediately imposed a new set of canons on all the clergy in England. All were now required to affirm, in the most unqualified terms, their acceptance of the doctrine, worship, and government of the Anglican Church. As a result, somewhere around a hundred Puritans were deposed of their livings, their churches, and they were, or they were driven into exile for refusing to conform. All right, the next major event. So still, you know, there's still this is happening. There's not been a lot of progress made, really. The next major event during the reign of James was the authorization of the King James Bible. How many of you heard of the King James Bible? Everybody's heard of the King James Bible, right? Well, this is the James, okay, that's, that it's named after, the King James Bible. There was one suggestion at the Hampton Conference that James did follow through with, it was suggested that the new English, a new English translation of the Bible be produced. And there are debates, you know, about who is the source of that suggestion. There are a number of opinions, but the official translators uh, in the preface to the new translation explicitly state that King James himself came up with the idea. And that may not merely be an attempt at flattery, uh, for ideas about new Bible translations had been floating around in Scotland for some time, for several years, while James was the king there. And so the suggestion very well may have come from James himself. Now, up until that time, the most popular English translation was the Geneva Bible. Maybe you've heard of the Geneva Bible, not, not R.C. Sproul's Reformation Bible. It was called the Geneva Bible, but an actual translation called the Geneva Bible, it had been translated by English Protestant exiles in Geneva during the reign of Bloody Mary. Remember, many Protestants went to, to uh, 
continent. Many of them went to where Calvin was, his church in Geneva, and they, they were exposed to that ministry there and the church order there and the way things were done there. And they, uh, some of these Protestants produced this translation. The Geneva New Testament translation, the New Testament one, appeared in 1557 and the complete Bible in 1560. The Anglican established did, establishment did not like uh, the Geneva Bible because of its marginal notes and comments because they tended to be strongly Puritan and Presbyterian in their flavor. The Anglican hierarchy preferred what was called the Bishop's Bible, which was translated in 1568. But again, the most popular English version among ordinary folk in England was the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible, for example, was the Bible of William Shakespeare. It was the Bible used by all types of Puritans throughout the 16th century. I hate to disappoint anyone, but the King James Bible was not handed down from an angel, you know, to John the Baptist or something and passed down through the generations, okay? <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, the uh, Geneva Bible, between 1560 and 1611, it went through 60 editions. It remained popular even for another half century after uh, the King James translation was, was made. However, there was a desire expressed by many for a new and a better translation, and James backed the proposal. He personally appointed 47 scholars who met in various committees in Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster over a three-year period from 1607 to 1610. And these scholars were not from any single school of thought. Uh, James, it appears, was more, more concerned about scholarship, really, in the translators than their theology. Some of the translators were establishment Anglicans, strongly opposed to all brands of Puritanism, and even critical of Calvinism. Some were Calvinists, but not Puritans, and some were moderate Puritans. So the King James Bible, therefore, represented no particular theological perspective in the translators, but it was a genuine attempt to accurately translate the text from the Hebrew and the Greek texts that were available to them at that time, and, and these were used by the translators. The, the completed translation was published in 1611, 1611. Now, though it's often been described as a new translation, and in one sense it was, it's also been pointed out that some 80%, 80% of the New Testament translation follows very closely Tyndale's translation in 1556. The translators also made use of the Bishop's Bible. Miles Smith, in the preface to the King James, stated, quote, Truly good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better. Samuel Ward, one of the scholars involved, reported that, quote, caution was given that an entirely new version was not to be furnished, but an old version long received by the church to be purged from all blemishes and faults. Eventually, by the second half of the 17th century, the King James Version replaced the Geneva Bible as the most popular English version, and as you know, it continued to be so uh, for a long time, for centuries. Now, there are a number of other important events that 
occurred during the reign of James, but I only have time to mention one more. We'll have to come back later. Whoa, there it is. It's right there. The publication of a Puritan classic, uh, The Practice of Piety by Lewis Bailey. The first edition uh, appears that it was published in 1611. Now, there's not a lot known about Bailey's origins. He was educated at Oxford. He held several posts in the Anglican Church before he became chaplain to James I's son, Prince Henry, in 1612. And by the the way, when you read about Prince Henry, he was a very godly young man as he grew to become a man, very devoted to Reformed theology. And sadly, though, he died uh, before he had opportunity to take uh, the throne. And his brother, Charles I, ends up becoming the next king who was not of the same character and theological perspective as his brother, Prince Henry. Uh, But Prince Henry's chaplain had been Lewis Bailey. And then later, he was chaplain to James himself in 1616. The same year, James appointed him Bishop of Bangor in northwestern Wales. And he's known for his book, The Practice of Piety. To what degree Bailey was a Puritan politically is debated. He was accused of of allowing uh, Puritan clergy to function in his diocese. Uh, He didn't require them to conform to the church's canons regarding things like vestments or making the sign of the cross and so on. But whether he was a full-fledged Puritan or simply a spiritually-minded, devout, Anglican, Calvinist Christian is uncertain. But his book was most definitely loved by the Puritans of all categories, and it became a classic of... uh, Christian spirituality, not only in England, but also in in the Dutch Republic. Needham points out that, quote, its impact on Puritan piety was enormous, endlessly reprinted. It was translated into many foreign languages. It had peculiarly, peculiarly powerful appeal in the Dutch Republic, where it was the best-selling item in all Reformed literature. It was to gain a special place in English spiritual history as the book through which John Bunyan would one day be awakened to the reality of spiritual things. If you read Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, or if you read Faith Cook's biography of John Bunyan, which I think we have in our uh, bookstore, um, Bunyan tells us that his wife brought with her two books into their marriage books that her godly father had given to her. One of the books was The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven by Arthur Dent, and the other was The Practice of Piety by Lewis Bailey. Well, you know, Bunyan was just, I guess to put it in today's terms, he was just a kind of a lazy partier at that point in his life. Uh, Sometime after they were married, his wife was shocked at her husband's profanities his careless attitude, and she would frequently reprimand him and tell him anecdotes about her godly father. She eventually encouraged John to read the books that her father had given to them, and he began to read them. He began to read from the practice of piety from time to time, and apparently they would sometimes take the book out and read from it together. And God used that book to begin to awaken in him a conviction of his own wretchedness and sinfulness and his concern and a desire in his heart that eventually led to Bunyan's conversion. So there's a little history about 
the book, The Practice of Piety by Lewis Bailey that was published during the reign of King James. All right, we have a few minutes. Do you have any comments or questions? That's all we'll cover today. Yes, Elaine? Yeah, that'd probably be profitable to do that in a Sunday school class. Um, just to kind of give you a, like, a, like a thumbnail. Um, basically, the most important issue when it comes to translations is, is in, and it's kind of a fuzzy line, there's, there's what are called formal equivalent translations, there are what are called dynamic equivalent translations. A formal equivalent translation, generally speaking, is an effort to translate more exact the language as it is in, in the uh, Greek text. A dynamic equivalent is seeking more to focus on making sure you get the thought correct in your translation because no translation can be absolutely word for word because languages don't, just don't match up word for word. And so I would say that the King James and the New American Standard are both formal equivalent in that kind of category, more formal equivalent translations. I think they're both very good translations. Same thing with the ESV. Uh, another issue that comes to debate sometimes is the text from which a translation has been tra uh, translated from. As I mentioned, the King James was translated from uh, the most popular text at the time, the Textus Receptus, the text that they had available to them at that time. But there are other text groups of texts that have been discovered or that exist. And uh, so sometimes there's debate as to what's the better text to um, translate from. And some people take a kind of um, eclectic approach to that. And that's what you'll see in what's called the majority text. And there are some translations that are built upon the majority text. And there's some that lean more to uh, another set of texts, sometimes uh, that um, is... The argument is that these are earlier texts, so they must be better texts because they're earlier. So this, this brings you into the whole field in, by, in, in biblical study called uh, textual criticism. Now, that's not the, don't get the idea that means you're criticizing the Bible and saying something's wrong with it. And it's not the same thing as what's called historical criticism, which is really the attempt of liberalism to kind of undermine the authority of Scripture. But textual criticism is the discipline and the art of taking the text and dealing with variants. You know, sometimes there'll be a variant in, in a text. And you'll see that in your King James Bible. If you have a, a new King James, you may see a notation. And underneath it'll say, the NU text has such and such. Or the, in the majority text, it's such and such. And so there's, there are principles and guidelines to seeking to narrow down, looking at all the different texts, what is most likely the, the proper text. And what's important for you to know is that all of these, what are called variations, are ultimately very insignificant. They don't affect any doctrine in Scripture. They don't affect any truth of Scripture in any way. They're not something to get hung up about. But there is a requirement. God, you know, I I'll often think about, uh, you know, we believe in the, preservation of believers, right? All of God's people are going to be preserved to the end. But we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. In other words, they must persevere. 
right? Perseverance is both a certainty. All true believers will persevere because God will preserve them, but it's also a necessity. We must persevere in the faith. Well, we believe in the preservation of Scripture, but we also believe that the church has a duty to preserve the Scripture, and that's part of the duty that's given to the church. I, I think about in the Old Testament when, um, you remember when uh, during Josiah's reforms, uh, they discovered, they're, clean, they're, they're cleaning out the wreckage of the temple and they discover a copy of the book of Deuteronomy that no one actually even knew existed. And so the priest brought the, that copy of the book of Deuteronomy before, before uh, Josiah and read it to him. And you remember he tore his clothes and he, he trembled and repented when he realized how far away they had drifted from God's word. And there was a case where the, the church... The old covenant people of God had neglected to properly preserve the scripture, but God did preserve the scripture, right? And so there is this, 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 uh, this area of teaching and study when you talk about the full scope of a, a theological encyclopedia of a textual criticism. And sometimes there can be differences about certain views on certain, certain points in the text, but they're usually very, very insignificant types of differences, and that's where you'll see some differences. So, so I would just say to you that the New American Standard is an excellent translation. The ESV is an excellent translation. I think the New King James is an excellent translation. The King James is an excellent translation. I think it's got a lot of archaic language, and it's hard for people to understand who read it today. And, um, you know, the whole point of a translation is to put the Bible in the vernacular, in the common language of the people, so they can understand it. And uh, so... Um, I think you can have great confidence in any of those translations. And that's different from a paraphrase. Uh, the NIV is more of a dynamic equivalent translation, but it can still be helpful sometimes because in capturing the thought that's there in the text that just a try to wooden word for word may, may miss. So I wouldn't make it my primary Bible, but I think it can be useful and helpful. All right, well, that's a that's a attempt to answer a question that we could spend a lot more time on. It would, I think it would be a good Sunday school lesson or two to, to deal with that issue. We've talked about doing that. And uh, your question kind of pushes us to talk about it some more. All right, well, let's, let's break off. It's time for us to end our class. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to consider these things. Help us to grow as Christians because of our study of the history of the church. Lord, that we would learn from both the bad things that happened and the good things, and that we would appreciate the heritage that has been handed down to us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.